Welcome to Theologically Speaking, a podcast of BJU Seminary. I'm your host, Eric Newton. And as you know, one of the things that for us as Christians living in this world requires is to have wisdom about what's going on around us. A lot of times we feel perhaps ill-equipped to understand the changing trends in our world. And so today I'm really delighted to have a couple of guests with me uh, to talk about a theory, an idea that has gained a lot of traction in our contemporary world. Uh, Before we talk about that, let me introduce them. It's so good to have uh, Dr. Josh Crockett here. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us. He's the pastor of Morningside Baptist Church and uh, actually a boyhood friend. So I will disclose that at the outset here. Uh, It's great to see what the Lord's doing in his ministry. And uh, his background is in uh, rhetoric and public address. He's got a degree and then MDiv and then a DMIN as well. And also uh, Dr. Gary Weir. Gary, thanks for being here. He's the provost and uh, the executive vice president for academic affairs here at BJU and uh, has a background in communication. And I think you're uh, even teaching a class this semester. Is that right? That is correct. A class in media and society where we look at uh, media and its influence on us as individuals and the broader culture. So do you have anything to talk about right now? Uh, There's plenty going on media-wise and in our culture and society. So, yes. Very good. Well, uh, thank you so much again, both of you, for being here. Our topic uh, is something called critical theory. And probably for most of us, this wouldn't have been a term a few years ago that we would have recognized in the least. Um, But it's something that actually has forced its way into uh, the public discourse and attention. Now, there are a lot of terms swirling around, a lot of new terms these days. Uh, Some of the ones that are somewhat related to what we're talking about today would be things like identity politics, uh, critical race theory, postmodernity, social constructs. So there are a lot of terms and there are a lot of applications that we could uh, trace down. Uh, But for sake of simplicity, we're actually going to talk about critical theory itself and some of its uh, manifestations. We're not really going to get into race and politics and some of the things that um, would be profitable discussions. Uh, but, But back to this core idea of critical theory. I think one of the things that would be helpful, uh, gentlemen, as we start out here, would be to discuss just for a minute whether this is something new. I mean, is this something that started in 2016? Uh, any background that we could help provide to critical theory? Yeah, it's it's certainly not something that is new. I mean, as a formal theory, it's probably been around since the earlier mid-20th uh, century, um, coming out of the Frankfurt School, German Um, theorists um, who really opposed any kind of traditional explanations for for culture and even science. Um, So it's it's not new. It's been around for a while, but I think the intensity of it um, is probably new in degree as opposed to kind. Yeah, uh, and sometimes there's a phrase used, a cultural Marxism. Uh, We're going to use the term critical theory um, cultural Marxism gets the, the idea that uh, these uh, originators of the theory tended to be Marxist, um, but they were applying Marxist ideas not in the realm of economics, but uh, politics and, and culture. And so they're looking at these uh, social cultural structures and critiquing them and actually um, wanting to change them. 
um, there, there was actually prescription embedded in, in that theory and not dis, just describing what was uh, going on. I think the, the term was actually coined in 1937 uh, by a gentleman by the name of Max Horkheimer. Uh, he was part of this Institute for Social Research, the, the Frankfurt School. Um, sometimes people wonder, is critical theory postmodernism? And that's, I think, kind of a challenging question to answer because postmodernism is so difficult uh, to define. But I would say that there are connections between the two, even though prominent theorists actually critiqued each other and probably wouldn't want to be lumped together. Uh, but among the similarities, uh, just at a very basic level, that they share similar critical notions about the Enlightenment. Uh, Gary, you mentioned science even. Uh, skepticism about a traditional understanding of truth uh, and how that should affect society. And really the preeminence of the group. We'll probably come back to that later, but as opposed to the individual or as opposed to the universal, uh, they both tend to emphasize um, local narratives or uh, groups. So uh, we could talk more about the history. And could I mention one yeah. thing real quick? Just as I was hearing you uh, mention that, it's interesting you mentioned the Enlightenment, particularly. I also think of modernism as well, which both of those were no friends to Christianity, obviously, um, in terms of the focus on rationalism and, and science. And so critical theory is, is similar in the sense that it is, it is a reaction to, especially during that time frame, to, to modernism. And um, though there are wild differences between critical theory and Christianity, as we're going to get into, it's just interesting that, that while they were no friend in the Enlightenment and modernism to Christianity, critical theory you know, shares strong criticism with those um, movements or those ideologies. Yeah, that's a really good point. And if you think about it historically, we're going back almost 100 years, not quite, to that period in between World War One and World War Two. there was a lot of utopian feeling and positivism going into the turn of the 20th century. And then, it, I mean, we're talking about Frankfurt, Germany here. We're, we're, we're talking about um, Austria, Hungary. We're talking about places that were just decimated. And so they're saying, listen, the, the outcomes of this rationalist, modernist thinking really aren't uh, bearing fruit. We, we've got to go in a different direction. So you can understand why they would want to change things up. That's right. Um, very good. Well, how about we proceed this way? Uh, Josh, uh, when we talk about key ideas, um, none of us claim to be experts on critical theory, but, th but there are some seminal ideas uh, that might help us move forward the conversation. Uh, what comes to mind in, in that light? I, I think as I understand the critical theory, it is a really a comprehensive worldview. And so it, it isn't exactly Marxism with the bourgeois versus the proletariat. It's not specifically economics, it's a much bigger umbrella. Uh, and and a, a lot of it has to do with seeing the world through the lens of power, that if, if you're in a minority group, you're almost automatically considered oppressed. If you're in a majority group, you're the oppressor. And then they just apply this to, to race, to gender, to class, uh, and almost this guilt by association. I remember, and Gary was one of my favorite teachers in undergrad, was my academic advisor for a while. One of the books that we read uh, was 
Kenneth Burke's rhetoric of motives that was kind of a rhetorical political analysis that essentially said everything we say has some motive, some ulterior motive behind it. And it's in that book dealt a lot with with power and his concept of dramatism that uh, was the basis of conflict. And so, and so I, this is a great conversation. I'm glad to be a part of just to learn. Uh, Gary, I don't know if, if that was true. I think that was written in the 1940s, Kenneth Burke's book. Yeah, it would have been in the 40s or 50s, you know, that, that era. And coming out of that, that line of thinking, and um, one aspect of, of Josh, what you're talking about is um, critical theory talks a lot about language and the power of language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that who, who gets to really tell the story and whose, whose terms whose language is dominant, that's a way of exerting power um, mm-hmm. over people. And of course, with this kind of a worldview and, and going back to what you were saying, Eric, about how is this related to postmodernism, one of the connections would be that that reality is constructed and it's constructed through language. So we exert power over people when we name situations and naming situations is very subjective as opposed to objective which again differs very significantly from our from our biblical worldview, but that's there's a strong connection there hmm. about what you were just saying about language. So that was really my introduction to some of those that thinking. I think it was probably 20 years ago in undergrad, but uh, you know, the critical theory now is obviously shaping uh, our culture and our cultural discussions. So uh, th- I'm I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit already about um, this being a worldview um, or an ideology. Uh, that term tends to have a little bit more of a negative uh, f- flavor to it. Um, is there anything uh, about critical theory um, that actually is a is a positive insight? Or you know, we would say we don't we don't agree with the worldview or the ideology, but we understand why you are critiquing things a certain way. There, there actually is a common grace insight, you might say, uh, from, uh, from the standpoint of critical theory. Is there anything like that? Well, going back to what Josh just said a minute ago, the focus on power. Um, you know, it, it does, the critical theory does ask or encourage us to ask questions about power and the abuse of power and what, um, though I don't think critical theory would get into this as specifically um, as, as scripture would, but, but human ambition, because that's more individualistic rather than, rather than a group orientation. Um, I, I think that that's an area I, that I often look to. I think of you know, Christ's admonition to his disciples that we, we don't lead as the Gentiles lead who lord it over. Mm-hmm. Um, others. So there's, um, there's some common ground there in terms of how we would ask questions about power, but the basis for asking those questions and then the conclusions that are drawn and the solutions are where there would be a, a pretty significant departure. Yeah. There's, there's this emphasis, too, on social structures and institutions having a powerful influence on people and I, I think that's one of the ironies in this as well, and, and that is that, that we would agree with that. 
that that actually institutions and social structures can have a powerful influence. We usually um, designate these with an ISM um, at the end of the word. word. So you have... Um, you know, for, for instance, uh, uh, naturalism, the, the cultural elite and, 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 and the naturalism that they promote um, uh, would be one example. I, I think of modern advertising. Uh, we might not think of that as a social structure, but it's a very powerful program in in our modern society. And I, I would say it is a social structure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, mean, I, should, let, I should let right. you comment oh, yeah. on that. So, yeah, so, I mean, the power, particularly over young people, probably over us all in, in what it says about what, what is beautiful, what satisfies, what, what purpose is in life. So I think we can agree, actually, that social structures like that actually can wield very powerful influence, and the way we use words matters. Um, we don't need critical theory to affirm that, uh, but I think we can agree uh, to that extent that it is a, it is a capable insight. And, and I think it's not only here in the U.S. that we see Roe v. Wade, you know, as a, a structural power uh, that has affected and impacted us. But you think of our missionaries who are in Muslim-majority countries, communist-majority countries, they're every day underneath the hegemonic power structure, you know, with these words that the critical theory would use. And we would say, yes, that, that is a legitimate concern. Um, Eric and I had a social studies teacher in middle school who would talk about absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, Mrs. Bauer, and uh, we and, and we see that that the even within the church, God has accountability structures so that we don't become overlords, so that we don't lord our power and authority over the, our spouse, or children in the home, our uh, congregations, the church, and, and government. Uh, I think our founding fathers had a lot of wisdom with the balance of powers that they set up. So certainly there's a lot of merit to that idea of, of power and even power within structures. Yeah. So if we're making this distinction, in, crucial distinction between insights and ideology, well, why, why would we say that critical theory is a worldview or an ideology? What, what, what do we mean by that? Well, for starters, it's... I think we were talking a little bit earlier, it, it, it's comprehensive. It tries to give a comprehensive explanation of understanding some of the most basic questions of life, like who am I, where did I come from, what is the purpose and meaning in life, and um, just going back to some of this conversation about oppression, um, this is a point where the biblical worldview and the worldview of critical theory would differ greatly. In critical theory, the, the greatest good is to rescue people from that oppression mm -hmm. that they're facing in society. And of course, from a, from a biblical perspective, the, the ultimate end is to be rescued, to be redeemed um, through the merits of, of Christ. So there's, just, there's this exclusive focus on rescuing um, those that, that have been oppressed and it's all encompassing in looking at life that way, and in that sense, it is a it's a worldview, and it gives it gives a normative explanation for how life um, is intended to be or should be, rather than just describing it. Yeah, it's a, we were talking before we actually um, started recording this uh, about how a lot of those who originated critical theory tended to stay in the theoretical. 
Um, uh, they, they are themselves criticized for not being activist enough. But I think, you know, we're seeing critical theory 2.0 or 3.0 um, come to fruition in the public discourse today. Uh, it really, as you've said, Gary, has embedded in it a, a normativity, um, a prescription for how the world should work. So I, I, I think, you know, fundamental differences, as you've mentioned, have to do with what is ultimate authority, um, what is hope, you know, what, what, what is going to be the answer, and, and really even just anthropology. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, and uh, so there are such uh, crucial foundational differences there. Um, I'd like to uh, spend a few minutes before we conclude here talking about a couple of areas where we might see critical theory um, uh, infiltrate or where we would see its influence. Um, so, you know, a couple of us work here in a, uh, an educational institution. Um, Josh, you, you pastor a congregation here locally. So I wonder if we could turn our attention to critical theory and education, and then uh, finally critical theory in the church. Um, so let's start with you, Gary, in education. What, what thoughts come to mind? Yeah, I think, and this is another way we can look at it historically, um, you know, for a time, critical theory was, I would say, in education was primarily housed or contained at the graduate level in certain graduate programs, especially um, in areas like the humanities, mm -hmm. whether it be rhetoric, as we talked about earlier with some, some of the shared background that, that all three of us have, um, Areas like English, political science, of course, sociology, um, anthropology, and it was really contained at the graduate level at many secular institutions. Well, over time, that has um, infiltrated into a lot of the experience that undergraduate students have, and then across disciplines. Mm -hmm. It's no longer really limited to certain areas, uh, but I think even in places like business, and economics, um, even when you get into areas like healthcare, you can you can start to see um, um, this come out. So, really, it's when I think of our culture today, there is I think an increasingly clearer line between Christian education and secular education, where. Uh, my wife and I do, sometimes we do um, seminars to help parents think about preparing their kids for, for um, college. And sometimes parents will say, well, it's okay to go to a secular college in the sense that they're going to have to work in a secular world at some point, so they're going to have to get used to it. And we'll point out to them, yeah, but the employer isn't teaching them how to think. Yeah. The employer expects them to know how to think already. So I look at it from a Psalm 1 perspective. Why would we want our believing children to sit in the seat of the scorner and just hear God mocked, uh, a biblical worldview mocked continually, and by people who are supposed to be looked up to, yeah. um, their professors. So that's probably some of the biggest influence in education. Yeah, that's helpful. Josh, how about the, the church setting? Either effects that you might see in a Bible-believing congregation or just sort of wrestling with how to respond to it as Christians? I mean, I mean again, the... The critical theory does give special attention, as Gary was saying earlier, to the oppressed and the vulnerable, which is certainly God's heart in Deuteronomy. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow, for the sojourner. 
Uh, but to say that's the fundamental problem and to ignore our original guilt uh, really doesn't, again, comply with the biblical worldview that says our, our fundamental problem is sin. We're sinners, not just one group. It's not just the oppressors, but even the oppressed are sinners who stand equally condemned before God. Uh, and then then really to say, and, and this is, it's powerful when someone expresses their lived experience of oppression. Uh, and those of us in the church who do a lot of biblical counseling and, and working with people who've experienced abuse, those are very powerful stories. We, we should listen and empathize, not just as pastors pastorally, but as Christians to our, our neighbors. But to say, like the critical theory does, that truth isn't even available to the dominant culture, that we're just completely blinded by our privilege, mm-hmm. the biblical worldview is going to say, no, the, the truth is found in God's word. It is, it's authoritative. It's not, uh, there, it's object, objective. There's absolute truth beyond just your subjective experience. And so I, I think there are really important critiques that the biblical worldview has to the critical theory. And, and the Christian worldview and critical theory, as, as I see them, can't, you, you, you can't interpret Christianity through that, that lens. You can, you can look at critical theory through the lens of your Christianity, but if you, if you reverse those, uh, you create major theological problems. Yeah, there's, there's an ultimate allegiance that functionally that you're really going to have to, to put into practice. If I could just interject real quickly, because you, you reminded me, Pastor, as you were saying that, of, of Genesis 1-1, where it all starts, in the beginning, God. You know, God revealing himself on his terms rather than our terms. It's not like the Bible begins with, okay, here's a bunch of evidence that I exist and you determine whether you think I exist or not. It just, God reveals himself that way. So we have that authority of scripture right from the start to evaluate things like critical theory rather than using a tool like critical theory to evaluate our Christian worldview. Right. Yeah, that's... That's good. I, I think in this context, a lot of 1 Corinthians 1 and how Paul says that the preaching of a crucified Savior is the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. It, you know, I I might swing back and forth, you know, with with every whim of doctrine, as, as Scripture says, trying to, you know, meet needs and, and, uh, and chase um, new ideas. But but God has already revealed himself in the most powerful way possible by actually coming and bearing witness to the truth in person and as God the Son. And, and, uh, and actually, that, is, um, that knowledge of that is uh, the most powerful thing possible. It, it, it changes lives, not by lording it over people, but by setting them free. Uh, as John eight thirty two says, so uh, we have a we we have a gospel um, that uh, that rescues people. Uh, we have hope to give. Uh, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, before we go, any any uh, resources? Uh, maybe it's about critical theory, or maybe it's just about thinking Christianly uh, in in our world. Anything come to mind? There's there's a guy out there that I've read a lot of his work, uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey, uh, who's an evangelical, like-minded believer, has researched critical theory a lot, and a number of uh, podcasts and YouTube videos and articles that he's written that, to me, have been very helpful. I, I feel like he has a, 
a balanced view. He speaks the truth in love, but he, he is speaking the truth. And to me, that's been very helpful at a pastoral level. Yeah. Maybe from my vantage point, point a couple of recommendations that may seem tangential to our to our conversation here, specifically focused on critical theory. But one, uh, I remember reading the book for the first time and was just totally arrested by it. It deals with the issue of power and sometimes how we as Christians can have a wrong viewpoint on power. And that was a book that was written by um, Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson. Ed, Ed Dobson, actually a, a, a BJU graduate, the book called Blinded by Might. And basically what they were doing was um, essentially apologizing for leading moral majority, not, be, not for standing up for, for what's right and, and, and good Christian morals, but thinking that the way to change society was by gaining power in Washington rather than having um, influence. So that's a good critique for us to keep in mind, I think even especially during this political season. And then I'm a big fan of, of David Wells and I think of his book, God in the Whirlwind, which is which is, a, I think, a much better way for us as believers looking at the culture around us and seeing how where the culture has influenced our thinking away from, from biblical Christianity and offering a solid critique culturally as, as he does. I, I, that's a go-to book for, for me when it comes to these kinds of issues. Yeah, that's a very helpful book. I fully agree with that. Well, thank you, um, Josh and Gary, so much for joining me today. Uh, we trust that this has been uh, helpful to you, and I think it's a good reminder that um, all of us are called to, to live prayerfully, to live faithfully, uh, to trust in God, uh, and uh, really to believe what His Word says and minister to those people around us through that Word. So uh, we trust that this conversation will help you uh, as we think it's helped us uh, to think and speak theologically and develop those habits of mind and heart and ministry that will glorify the Lord. Until next time, uh, we, we hope that you have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us for Theologically Speaking.